Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the CEO and founder of Booksby and the host of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. Now, we all know the first page is often the most rewritten page of any book because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader. And today, we have the honor of talking with Alka Joshi, the debut best-selling author of The Henna Artist, which immediately became a New York Times bestseller, a Reese Witherspoon book club pick, and long-listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Welcome to page one, Alka. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Holly, for having me. And what a treat it is to be with my very first workshop instructor. <laughs> I had never taken a workshop before or learned how to write uh, fiction until I took your class. And this must have been like over 12, 13 years ago. And it was an amazing experience for me. And you were so generous and encouraging that it kept me going. And eventually I went into that MFA program. Oh, wow. That's like what every instructor wants to hear. And, you know, when you and I had a conversation earlier this week, that's all you can ever hope for. And I mean, I literally have chills right now. You can see the, the hair sticking up <laughs> on my arms. So yes, full disclosure, everyone, Alka and I have known each other. I had the great joy of working with her. And we're going to mention that in just a second here of your first short story. And I'm just so excited to talk to you about everything that went into the first page of The Henna Artist, and especially for all of those who are considering writing a book. I know Alka and I both hope you listen to this because Alka is a testament to pursuing the writing dream. She published her debut novel at the age of 62. And age does not matter when you're writing. They say that a poet peaks in their 20s and a novelist only gets started when they're 40. So your perseverance and dedication to the craft enabled her to pursue her writing talents after a very long career in marketing, which we'll get to as well later on in the discussion today, but it gets even better. So The Henna Artist is also being developed into an episodic series by Miramax TV. Alka, you've been very busy writing, haven't you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the sequel, The Secret Keeper of Japur, will be published June 22nd and will be followed by the third book in the trilogy next year. So your debut, The Henna Artist, is described as a vivid and compelling portrait of one woman's struggle for fulfillment in a society pivoting between the traditional and the modern. And it's clearly drawn from your own life, being born in India and raised in the United States since the age of nine. And this is where I remember that, sh that first short story that you were writing about your struggle of fitting in in Iowa as an immigrant and as a child and something about wanting to wear bell bottoms at a county fair. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, absolutely. It was so hard, I think, as immigrants to Iowa in 1967, when, you know, we went from a school where we looked like everybody else in school, we uh, did everything that everybody else did, we celebrated the same festivals and so on. Now, all of a sudden, we're in Iowa. And I was nine, my brothers were 11 and eight. 
And suddenly we're in schools where it's only white people. We're the only brown people like ever for years. And so people, of course, already see the difference in us. They see that we have a British accent instead of an American accent. So, you know, that's the first thing that we try to do to blend in is, you know, do the accent properly for Americans. And then, of course, had I been an athletic girl, I would have joined the sports crowd, but I wasn't athletic. Uh, had I been sort of a gregarious girl, I might have joined the gregarious crowd and become a cheerleader and so on. But I was a very shy girl and there was no way that I felt like I could fit in because I couldn't really talk to a lot of people because I felt like uh, my voice would seize up, my heart would start beating. I didn't really have anything to say. And then when I did uh, make a presence like in a social gathering, People would bombard me with questions that I couldn't answer as a nine-year-old. Questions about India, about where were all the poor people and what was I doing about them? Um, you know, questions about why there were uh, sacred cows. Why did we worship cows on the street? Uh, it's questions about how did I learn English? How is it that I just came here and I happen to know English? Did I have to study really hard to learn fast? So these were all so new to me. These were all questions that completely perplexed me because I come from a middle-class existence in India. I came from a privileged background and I had nothing to do with the kinds of things that people here knew about India. Now, you know, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, I'm sure you've read her, I love her work. But one of the first things that she says is that there is danger to a single story about a people or a country. And I felt, I think at nine years old, that people only here in the West knew about a single story of India. And that story was India is poor, it's illiterate, and there are beggars on every street corner. Yeah. And that wasn't the real story of India because just like any other country, you have your wealthy, you have your middle class, and you have your lower socioeconomic class. And that's what I remembered. So yeah, some of the things that I you know, was writing about initially were some of the things that I had to get used to, uh, like going to the Iowa State Fair, where there was this huge butter cow. It's like a cow made out of butter. What is that all about? And you know, there were all of these games and things. Well, you know, we have circuses in India as well, but there were, they were different somehow here. Everything was bigger in the West. You know, the candy corn even, I mean, the uh, cotton candy was even bigger than anything I had ever tasted before. Well, I remember you rendered that so well in your short story. And I remember you having a moment from that child's perspective of her lunch, right? Her lunch was different because of the food that her mother had made her. And it's this authenticity that I loved. And what I think so many people are loving about your work right now and discovering it, right? In this debut novel, and you bring all that attention to detail to the henna artist, which the cover states is a world that is at once lush and fascinating, stark and cruel. And I'm going to read the summary so listeners can get a sense of the story before we dive into everything that went into the first page. Mm -hmm. So for everyone who's listening, you can curl up, grab your cup of coffee or tea. And or chai. Yeah, or chai, exactly. And, and here's just a little snippet because we're never going to give away plot spoilers on page one. Um, but here, here we go. Escaping from an abusive marriage, 17-year-old Lakshmi makes her way alone to the vibrant 1950s pink city of Jaipur. There she becomes the most highly requested henna artist and confidant to the wealthy women of the upper class. 
but trusted with the secrets of the wealthy, she can never reveal her own. Known for her original designs and sage advice, Lakshmi must tread carefully to avoid the jealous gossips who could ruin her reputation and her livelihood. Now, as she pursues her dream of an independent life, she's startled one day when she's confronted by her husband who has tracked her down these many years later with a high-spirited young girl in tow, a sister that Lakshmi never knew she had. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the caution that she has carefully cultivated as protection is threatened, but she perseveres, applying her talents and lifting up those that surround her as she does. Well, you certainly do that with your writing, Alka. And I am so excited to dive into this. So Reese Witherspoon selected your book as a Hello Sunshine book club pick. And she said it captivated me from the first chapter to the final page. So I thought that's a perfect place to start the first page of your first chapter. Will you read it to us, please? Yes. And you know, one thing I do want to say is that since the time that I first started uh, working with you on writing, That was all about the differences I felt between my life as an Indian girl and my life in the United States and what that could look like. But since then, what I discovered in writing The Henna Artist and in putting together this story that is taking place all in uh, India is that I come from an amazing country. And it allowed me in writing this novel and doing the research, it allowed me to actually feel how proud I am of my heritage and that the India I came from is what I get to describe finally, now that I have the words and the language to be able to do that. So I wish that my nine-year-old self could actually tell people, this is the India I came from, you guys. This is the India I couldn't talk about when I was just nine years old. Mm. That is beautiful. All right. We're so excited. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here is chapter one. Jaipur, state of Rajasthan, India, November 15th, 1955. Independence changed everything. Independence changed nothing. Eight years after the British left, we now had free government schools, running water, and paved roads. But Jaipur still felt the same to me as it had 10 years ago, the first time I stepped foot on its dusty soil. On the way to our first appointment of the morning, Malik and I nearly collided with a man carrying cement bags on his head when a bicycle cut between us. The cyclist, hugging a six-foot ladder under his arm, caused a horse carriage to sideswipe a pig who ran squealing into a narrow alley. At one point, we stepped aside and waited for a raucous band of hijras to pass. The sari-clad, lipstick-wearing men were singing and dancing in front of a house to bless the birth of a baby boy. So accustomed were we to the odors of the city, cow dung, cooking fires, coconut hair oil, sandalwood incense, and urine, that we barely noticed them. What independence had changed was our people. You could see it in the way they stood, chest puffed, as if they could finally allow themselves to breathe. You saw it in the way they walked, purposefully, pridefully, to their temples, the way they haggled more boldly than before with the vendors in the bazaar. Wow. Absolutely stunning. I'm there. I'm there in such a, a huge way. And we had the opportunity to talk prior to this. And in that conversation, I am curious to know 
how much rewriting went into this first page to get it to where it is because it has that resonance where you can feel it. It's like putting your finger around a crystal and it's just like zing. (laughs) Yeah. So I must have rewritten this about 15 or 20 times because every editor, every person who touched this novel and gave me some kind of feedback on it, they helped increase the tension, the setting, and the deepening of every character. For for example, in this very first chapter, the way that I originally had started was we were right into the first scene where Lakshmi and Parvati are sitting in Parvati's bedroom and Lakshmi is painting her henna and they're having a conversation. And the conversation is informing us about what's happening politically in India and what's happening culturally around these two women. But What one editor, I think, pointed out to me is, where's the setting? Like, where are we? You know, you're already there as a writer. You are already in that setting and you're writing about the setting. But step back a little bit. Where are we? And I said, well, we're in Jaipur. And she said, okay, then step back even further and, and tell us, what does Jaipur feel like at this time in 1955? What's it like to be on the streets? What is around this house that we are in currently? And that's when I stepped back and tried to recall, okay, what is it like to be in Jaipur? What are the streets filled with? What are the people doing along the streets? And it was wonderful to be able to do that because then I was completely in the city and then I could continue with the scene as I had planned it, then getting into the actual house and learning about all of the different people that are in this house. We are suddenly also interacting with the servant class that we hadn't uh, before in previous iterations of this first page. So we are seeing a world that is much larger on this first page than I had originally started with. Yeah, and so I, I wanna back up to these very first two sentences, right? Independence changed everything independence change nothing. It is so powerful. And I want you to speak to that because I wonder when in the process that came to you, because I also see that it's an incredible setup for your character's arc in general, right? Okay. So um, at the time in 1955, when I wanted to set this novel, it was also the year that my parents were married. And it was the year that I think a lot of things had started to change in India. We were past partition at that time. So there was no longer that migration between uh, Pakistan and India going on between 14 to 16 million people. But there were still 300 million people in India who were experiencing freedom for the first time in 200 something years after the British left. So what did it feel like for those people? I wanted to know. I interviewed my dad and my mom, who were, of course, alive before independence, during independence, and then after independence. And then they were friends and anybody I could talk to in Jaipur who was alive at that time. And they said, wow, we were feeling really exuberant. We were feeling like, oh, thank God we have our country back after all of these years. We get to determine now how the trajectory of our people is supposed to advance in the future. And so I wanted to say that's what independence changed. Independence changed everything about the way these people felt about themselves, about the way they felt about their future. But independence also changed nothing in the way that the women were treated. The women are still second-class citizens in 1955. They are still women that are 
somehow considered property because they are sold off into arranged marriages. And I say sold off, not in any kind of auctioned way, but you know, there are requirements for what each family is willing to settle on, how much money is going to be exchanged in this wedding process, how much future earnings are going to be exchanged in this process. There's a lot to consider when there is an arranged marriage. So women are still property. Women are still being exchanged as goods and as futures for future generations. So that is one thing that hasn't changed. The other thing that didn't change also is that the Indian people have maintained a lot of their traditions despite all of the invasions and the colonization and you know, raping and pillaging that has gone on over the years with the silk route and the spice route and this route and that route. You know, all the wealth of India has been wanted by so many people. But Indians themselves really took pride in their culture. They wanted to hold on to various aspects of their culture that they never changed. The food, for example, you know, all the spices that we cook with, we still cook with all of those same spices. The way that women dress in their saris, that is still a very formal part of what it is to go to an Indian function. You see all these women in all their glorious silks and satins and colors and patterns. What hasn't changed, of course, is the women's agency in this world. Uh, but what has changed is that the people of India are feeling more liberated. Yeah. And so there's a beautiful parallelism too, right? It's like everything has changed. Nothing has changed in that parallelism. When do you remember the moment when that came to you? Because it's kind of one of the zingers when you know, you're like, oh, those are my, that's my first sentence. Right. And I'm curious, like, when did that come? Was it, was it something that immediately came to you? Was it kind of one of the standalone lines that you heard driving your car and you went, oh my gosh, I can't wait. Like now I'm in, I've, I've got this. And now I know what my first sentence of my book is going to be, which is, it doesn't have to be clever. It has yeah. to be, it has to work well. It has to right. be the right one, right? Well, it did not come with the actual setting of the street scene. So first I did the street scene. I imagine the street scene. I imagine everything in my head first before I write it down. So in my head, I am imagining the street scene. I see the bicyclist. I see the pig. I see the cow. I see everything. And then I finally start writing it down on paper. And then I think, okay, I'm missing something. It's still not sort of encapsulating what I'm trying to say. And uh, then, of course, I channeled Dickens. Twas the season of light, twas the season of darkness. That is where the independence line came to me. I thought, yeah, you know, it is a mixture of both. There is independence and then there's no independence mm -hmm. for some people. So that is kind of where that came from. Yeah. Well, and so I talked about this yesterday with JT Ellison, and we talked about the onus that's on the author to raise the question, right? And so by bringing in such a strong um, statement, right? Independence changed everything. Independence changed nothing. We immediately go, why? And I wonder how, right? And so you've, you've embedded this question, right? In that first sentence. And we talked about how that if you can, right? In the imperative, we have to do that as storytellers. You have to raise the question because if you don't remember in the classes, I'd say if we flip the question upside down, it becomes a hook. Right. And that's the hook. And so 
you ought, you start to tease us into questions. You're raising questions. And then you're bringing us into this world in this really enriched world. And I want to ask you about that. You, you were using gestures and looking around like you're in a virtual reality, which is exactly what yeah. storytelling is, right? So yeah. will, you speak, will you unpack that a little bit? Because for those people who are aspiring, or maybe you're just a, a reader, an avid reader, and you're excited yeah. to read Alka's book, storytellers transport themselves for you so that yeah. you can get transported through the words that they choose. So tell us about that transportation, because you literally just looked around as if you were in a virtual world. (laughs) I am. And I think so much of it, Holly, has to do with the fact that I started my life out as an artist. And I think in lines and patterns and colors and shapes, that is the way I experience the world. And so when I am developing a scene in my head, I am actually seeing, okay, there's a couch here in this part of the room. And then what is the fabric on that couch? And then here is a person standing here. Are they standing next to somebody? Are they carrying something in their hand? Are they gesturing towards somebody else who is in the room? And then I see the fabric and everything that they're wearing on their clothing. If there's a candle in the room, I am seeing it flickering and I'm thinking, is there a scent from that candle? These are all things that occur to me as Mm -hmm. I am creating a scene. And I actually do not write until the scene is really vibrant in my head. There is no use of me putting something down on paper that I'm not seeing in my imagination first. So that's the way I write. Other people will write it differently, especially if they don't experience the world as as a, a visual person like I am. Yeah. So I'm curious about that too, because it all brings in, there's so much incredible imagery. It opens up like a movie. We're in the back streets, right? And you're doing this beautiful funneling thing where you're kind of opening wide with the statement, which raises a question. Then you're kind of giving us historical context in that, in the very next sentence, you say, eight years after the British left, we now had free government schools, right? And then you say, but it still felt the same to me as it had 10 years ago. So you're, you're immediately giving me a quick, remember we talked about brushstrokes, you're like brushstroking in just enough for the reader to have a location to understand historically, give you a quick context. Yeah. Because if you were to have started on that first chapter in that scene or the, the prior one where she's having that political conversation, we wouldn't have had a context, right? We, we would not have been grounded in this location. So you kind of bring us through the back roads, right? Yeah. We literally can we can feel it. We have the dust. It's up in our noses. And And Holly, I had this other mission to accomplish, which is I'm writing about a whole different culture. I'm writing about a whole different history that people in the West, if they're reading it in the West, will not know about. Even Indians today who are reading this book in India don't know so much about the history of what happened right after the British. So they're telling me they're learning something about the history. So I had all these other things I needed to accomplish also, which was to make the writing understandable to Eastern and Western audiences and to inform them about something that they didn't already know. Yes. So let's unpack that too, because... There's a lot of choices that I can tell on your first page that went into exactly what you chose and why, because you can front load it with almost too many details and cultural nods that you think, okay, I'm, I'm letting them in, but it can be too much, right? If, if they, if they're not used to this, right? So bringing in a Western audience to this world, gently, methodically, 
it's a skill. So I am curious, there's so much that we can get to, we could talk about just the cow dung all the way down to, I think one of the best things that you said here is when I read this to the very first time, I just thought, Oh, this is fantastic. I had never heard someone compare something that it was as hot as a tandoori oven. Right. And I thought hopefully most people in the West have had maybe been exposed to Indian food and they know what tandoori chicken is in the tandoori oven. And I thought like, I want to ask you about that. Was that a choice of, do I find something and some reference that won't be so far out of left field for a reader or someone new to this culture and kind of take us through that. Some instances here in these first words in this first page that allow us to come into that world and culture? No. So Holly, I have to tell you, I did not worry about whether the Western audience would be able to understand what's going on or not. I thought as long as I can describe things the way I am experiencing them in my imagination, they will come through in the context. The meaning will come through in the context. So even if somebody doesn't know what a tandoori oven is, Um, people know that an oven gets heated and super hot. So they'll understand what it is. And I've had book clubs ask me all these questions in the last year, like, did your publisher tell you to write this for a Western audience? Did your publisher tell you to make it modified for a Western audience? And I have to say, absolutely not. I wrote the book that I can write because, Holly, I have an Eastern and a Western Uh, DNA in me, right? Mm -hmm. So I have the ability already to be able to combine those two worlds in a way that's really understandable to me, and that I think will be understandable to either audience. And you just inhabit it, right? As a storyteller in general, that is your job to go into the world in this three-dimensional place. And that's where I think this authenticity, right? It's a different when you, you know, when you read something where it feels like it's under plexiglass, right? You're like, you're telling me something, you want me to experience something, but I'm not experiencing it because I can't get at it. You haven't given me an entrance to really step foot with you and you hold my hand and take me into this world, right? And that's what your words do. That is the power of this opening. I mean, all the way down to riding on the, you know, or feeling the bicycle cutting between, you know, you're there. Yeah. Now that actually has happened to me many times. And, you know, I remember these things happening when we were kids in India that, you know, you're walking along and suddenly there's a scooter that cuts across your path. And then there's all these hijras, uh, you know, the, the eunuchs uh, who are uh, dancing in, in the street and they're, you know, blessing the birth of a baby boy. Then maybe you see this white horse coming down the street with a groom on it because right behind them is the whole wedding party. You know, there's so much that's going on all the time in India. And all I had to do was just close my eyes, imagine one of those scenes and write it. You're listening to Page One, a podcast produced by Booksby that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. Join us each month to hear master storytellers share the struggles and stories behind the first page of their books and tips on the craft to inspire you. You're welcome to join our community of creatives at Booksby.com. And remember, if you're a writer, the world needs your story. So keep writing and be well. When you look back at the first page and what it does to invite us in to this world, 
it's almost like a metaphor for this very journey that your character is going to go on. And then it's this larger journey of women in general in India, who from 1955 to now, the changes and the velocity of those changes, and in some instances, none at all. So I am just kind of curious if you were aware of that, or is that just something that happens? I think that one of the things I've learned through writing over and over and over the revising is I always had to get to what is the intention? Why am I writing this book? What is the reason for me to try to channel a new life for my mother? Why was I trying to do that? And when I went back to that intention always, it was because I wanted my mother to have the kind of life that she afforded me. What would have happened if she could have made all the decisions in her life? And then I thought, why is that important to me? I thought, well, because I have had this amazing life filled with all kinds of amazing experiences because I got to make all my own decisions. I have so much more confidence than my mother did just in her life and her ability to determine a life for herself uh, because she never had the opportunity to do any of those things. So then when I went back to that intention, I realized I'm not just talking about my mother. I'm talking about all women. I'm talking about the right of every woman to make the choices that are going to determine her destiny. That is so important to me. And that is the way I really try to live my life. I try to help other women live their lives in this way. And I feel that maybe with this book, I am reaching people on a far larger scale than I ever could have had I just done one TED Talk or had I been at a conference where I got to keynote about women's choices. With this book, oh my gosh, I am reaching thousands, hundreds of thousands of readers across the world. And that is really exciting. Well, well, you just touched on something. You had said something about the choices to determine your destiny. And I want to take a moment to segue into your background before you even started down this. You said your background's in art. You've been an artist, but we also know you have a background, a very strong background in marketing. Yeah. And that statement that you just said about the choices to determine your destiny, mm-hmm. so much is put upon the author to build their own platform and the choices to determine the book's destiny as well. And I want to stop there and ask you about the marketing efforts. And do you see marketing as a huge importance to your book? And how were you prepared for this journey in publishing based on your background? Okay. I think this is really important because so many writers don't have a marketing and advertising background the way I have. I have been so lucky. Uh, When I was in advertising, I learned how to make mini stories. I learned how to write dialogue for radio spots. I learned how to do TV commercials. So I understood what it is to create scenes that can communicate so much in a short period of time. So that is something I learned in there. With marketing, what I learned is that audience members, your target audience, they want to know who you are. They want to know who's behind the product that they're buying. They want to know the story behind the story. This is really important for audiences. So then when I started talking about the henna artist, I understood that what people really want to know, not just Lakshmi's journey, but they want to know my journey. They want to know why I wanted to write about my mother. What was my mother like? you know, what did I learn from my mother? These are all really important things that I think we need to share. I think so many writers, Holly, are afraid to become vulnerable. And I knew from my marketing that 
the more vulnerable you are, the more you can expose of yourself as you are communicating about your work, the more the readers can resonate with you. You know, human beings communicate with human beings. We connect to each other because of our personal experiences. That's what readers want to know about. So like if I have one piece of advice, I would tell any writer out there, it is learn what your story is behind the story. What's your intention for writing something? And then make sure that you let everybody know what your intention was as you start talking about your work, because they're hungry for that knowledge. That's what they want to know. Well, and then that becomes part of, you know, an authentic bit of content that you're sharing outside of the pages, like when people want more of you, and it's like, they read the end, that's it. There's an ongoing conversation that then you get to use in your marketing, whether it's social, and I am kind of curious, like, how much time are you spending on that right now? Um, And how do you find the time with all the other writing demands? For the last year, I spend about two to four hours a day on social media. And it's not because I love social media. Before I became a writer, before my book was published, I was not on social media at all. I really resented having to be on Facebook because everybody said, you've got to be on Facebook. And I didn't know anything about Instagram or Twitter. I'd never been on any of those. But one of the things that my publisher said is you need to start a social media presence because Alka, first of all, you don't have any short stories you've ever published and you don't have any articles that you have ever written for any major magazine. So how do we push you? How do we promote you? How do we even talk about you? You're an advertising and marketing person. That's it. That's all we can say. And so I thought, okay, let me see what social media is all about. And I went on YouTube and I tried to learn how people project themselves on social media, what they talk about, what's important to portray. And then I learned about Instagram and how there's a huge book community on Instagram. So I got on Instagram and I realized, oh, this is my medium because it's so visual. All you have to do is post very large pictures and then very little copy about what you're communicating with the image. And so I thought, oh my God, this is perfect. I can post pictures of my mom, pictures of Indian food, pictures of Jaipur, everything that I included in the henna artist, I can put those pictures on Instagram and get people to know who I am. And that's exactly what I did. The other thing that I think is super important for anybody who is writing is remember what it was like when you were a reader. Remember when you wrote to an author because you loved their book. Did you expect an answer back? Did you want an answer back? And what did it feel like when they answered you? Now I know what that feels like because readers are writing to me every single day and I write back to them. I want to write back to every reader because they deserve to know that their letter did not go into some slush pile somewhere, never having been seen by the author. And I'm grateful to every reader and I want them to know that. So yes, I spend a lot of time DMing and and messengering people on Facebook. And just a lot of people email me just with a little kind note about how much they love the henna artist. And I'm like right there with them. I'm like, thank you so much. Well, thank you for sharing all that, because I think there's some notion that, you know, you write a book and all of a sudden the publisher is behind all the, the marketing and you just get to write your next book. And you know, understanding the business, understanding the importance of spreading the word and being a part of that effort, or really kind of directing it yourself as, as you are, um, most authors have to do that, mm-hmm. is a huge part of what it means to be a professionally published author, whether you're independently published or traditionally published, 
every author is faced with this task and it is daunting. But what I love hearing from you is that you do it with so much heart and you do it with so much appreciation for that interchange and that direct relationship with your readership. And that is priceless, right? To engage them because we can write a book, right? But we're never fully, truly satisfied until that book and that experience is shared by a bunch of other people, right? And so you, in this way, it's such an inspiring story because A, you defy the whole age thing, right? We've already talked about this. It's like, it just, it's only beginning yeah. now, right? And yeah. you have such incredible energy and you've always been like this, by the way, Alka's always had this kind of demeanor and it's just a joy to be around. Clearly you love writing. You love this process and you're, you're loving the opportunity to engage with your readership and which yeah. seems to be growing exponentially like every day, you know? Yeah. And, you know, uh, I've done 350 book clubs now and that has all been word of mouth, you know, one book That's club, incredible. you know, you had members who were a part of other book clubs and they said, Oh my God, you know, we just had this author on and it was really great. I love the book. Let's have her on here. And it just grew and grew and grew from there. It was just amazing. Every time I would do any kind of a library event or a bookstore event virtually, because as you know, my book was, published during the pandemic. So I never had any kind of a bookstore event. But every time I would do a virtual event of any kind, I would say, hey, if you've got a book club, you know, go ahead and and contact me. And here's how you can contact me. I think a lot of authors are afraid of that personal contact, but Mm -hmm. you have to get over that. Because think about what it was like when you were a reader. And think about how much you wanted to know that author that that whose book you loved how much you wanted to know why they wrote this thing and how do they feel about it? And where are these characters going once the last page is finished? I want to know these things as a reader. And so why wouldn't I want to communicate with uh, readers now the way that I wanted writers to communicate with me? That's how I, and then, you know, Holly, there's this other thing too. None of us women are where we are today without the people on our backs, without the people who came before us, none of us. We cannot give anybody else credit for where we are here, except for the people who have come before us. So every person who has helped me make this book better, everybody who has helped me write this book or contributed to it, like my dad with all of his proverbs that went into the book, I'm grateful to everybody who got me here because it takes a village to write a book. And I think a lot of writers think, oh, I'm just going to write this book and it's just going to be my book. It's not. It's it's our book. <laughs> yeah, well, and that, that brings us full circle to this understanding of what a first page has to do, right? You are courting a reader. You have to hook them. You have to constantly be thinking, what experience am I offering the reader? And what is the value of that experience? Because We all know a book is not a book. A book is a combination of 26 letters that every author, it's the most democratic experience, right? (laughs) Everyone, the playing field is even for everyone who's writing, at least in this language, well, in other languages too, but in this one, 26 letters, a combination, yours creates this experience. And to always have the courtesy of thinking about the reader first. I feel that this is so imperative for writers, right? To understand and, and for readers to know, like, that's how hard you're working to engage them, to give them this experience that they get to go to a whole different time zone. They are in a different, you know, country, a different culture, 
different yeah. historical and political aspect, different lives they're entering, all yeah. for an incredibly affordable price, right? <laughs> right. You know, the henna artist took me 10 years and 30 drafts. And, you know, readers will tell me, oh my God, I finished the book in one sitting or I finished it in two days. And while I'm delighted that they loved it so much that they you know, raced through it, I'm also conscious of the fact that, wow, it took me 10 years to write this. It's hard work. This is hard work. But when a reader can read through it really quickly and love it and then want to start all over again, your job has been accomplished because you have written this in a way that is so translatable to anybody who is reading it. Yeah, well, and clearly you have achieved that. And it is such a hard thing to achieve. And you did it with your debut. And, you know, speaking of first pages, is there a first paragraph of something that recently you have been reading that you would like to share with us? Um, Something that captured you where that author hooked you and did her or his job or their job of grabbing your attention and having the courtesy to consider your needs to have a really great experience. Yes. I loved the first couple of lines of this story and I read them often and they are actually written by my husband who is Bradley J. Owens. Uh, And this is his book of short stories, How I Met You. The story is a circle of stones. And I just love this. In 1967, when I was 10 years old, My mother married Harlan Frame, and we moved that summer to a house he'd bought for us in Slaughter, Texas. My mother could have done a whole lot worse than Harlan and probably would have given half a chance. I just love that because we are immediately in this environment, a small town in Texas, Slaughter, Texas. And uh, we are with the boy and his mother. And now we know he has a stepfather and his mother makes weird choices. His mother makes flighty choices. Now, you know, we recognize that there's something, um, you know, not quite stable about her. (laughs) So yes, I love that. So that's how I met you. And uh, it's Bradley J. Owens. So how is that to have a husband who's also a writer? How does that work for you guys? Oh, my gosh, you know, it's been the best experience for me. And for Brad, because we can talk about our books. We can talk about places where we are stuck. Like, for example, we just took a walk yesterday and uh, I wanted to take a walk because I wanted to discuss with him book number three that I'm writing. And do I start with this particular uh, story or do I start with this particular story? So I talked over both with him and he listens. He listens really well. He listened and then he said, well, I can see that there's value in both. But I think this other one, the second one that you mentioned is the better way. So we talked the whole thing through. We do this all the time. We talk through each of our work. And like oftentimes when he writes, he will share it with me and then he'll say, okay, so please read this and tell me what are you getting out of it? What are you understanding? And so on. I actually think it's wonderful being married to a writer. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a great litmus test, right? Where you can do this and maybe you guys can play the first page game of like, did it hook you? Did it hook you? (laughs) So I'm curious, we, we talked about a recent one and it happens to be your husband's, which is fantastic. I'm actually hooked. I'm curious. I I would love to read his short story. And what about an all-time favorite first page or first line or something that really worked for you? And I asked this question, and I'm going to tell all the listeners, this doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be Alka's favorite book. It's just that it's a favorite first page, first opening that really does it for her. It's a big yes for her. 
So Jane Eyre is one of my favorite, favorite books of all time. And I have read it several times. And I'm going to read to you just the first paragraph. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering, indeed, in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning. But since dinner, Mrs. Reed, when there was no company, dined early. The cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so somber and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and a heart saddened by the chidings of Bessie the nurse and humbled by the consciousness of my physical inferiority to Eliza, John, and Georgiana Reed. So right away, you see that Jane is talking about herself and how she is distanced from this family in some way. She is emotionally not connected to them. And also that they make a big deal about the fact that she is somehow inferior to them, not only physically, but also in other ways that we can only imagine so far where she feels like she is really not of this family. And yet she is somehow bonded to them. She needs to be with them. And we'll of course find out later, you know, it makes us ask those questions that you were talking about earlier where from the very beginning, we're like, well, why, why is she with this family that doesn't like her? You know, why are we taking walks when we don't want to take walks when it's so nippy and chilly outside? Why doesn't Jane want to be with these people? So it makes us ask all those questions that makes us want to read further. Yeah, well, and it's so interesting because she does a great job if this were art, right? We see this contrast between the other. She has set this character's point of view of I am other and this is that. The energy starts right there when the contrast is in, right? And there's an opposition and you can feel the tension. Yeah. And now we're in, right? Because now our own humanity, right? If we have even the smallest iota of compassion, we're like, how many of us have felt that? How many of us have felt that we didn't fit in, right? And so it's it's just these basic human things, but it's it's amazing what the storyteller is, you know, the the power that that you have to elicit all this within us, right? That's a great way to put it. That is such a great way to put it. And wouldn't you love to know from Charlotte Bronte, uh, how often she wrote that first paragraph to get it just right? Yeah, I'm like 10 years and, you know, 30 versions or 20 versions for you. Um, It's, uh, I, I just think there's so much humility when it comes to this process, right? And revision is the key. And so thank you for sticking to it and creating just such a beautifully rich first page and a beautiful first novel. Thank you so much, Holly. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful chatting with you again after all these years. And, you know, thank you so much for being my very first workshop instructor. (laughs) Not only have I been able to write one novel, but I had no idea I'd be writing a second novel and a third novel as a result. I mean, that's been like, wow, I guess I'm a writer now. I really (laughs) think of myself as an author now, which is something that took me a long, long time to accept. Well, you were a writer the first time that you started to put your pen on on the page and you had the courage (laughs) to do it, right? Because we know that it's a journey of many, many years and many, many attempts, right? To craft and engineer a story. And I'm so excited to follow you. And this is the beginning of many other conversations. I hope we get to talk about the first page of the other two books. Uh, Um, And just for everyone listening, you can find Alka at alkajoshi.com. It's A-L-K-A-J-O-S-H-I.com. And Alka, can you share any of your handles on social so people can find you too? 
So on Instagram, I'm at the Alka Joshi. It turned out there were a lot of other Alka Joshi. So I had to write the Alka Joshi. It's the official one. And then of course I'm on Facebook. You can find me Alka Joshi author, and you can find me on Twitter at Alka Joshi. Thank you so much for joining us. This was such a pleasure and an honor, and I can't wait to continue reading. Thank you, Holly. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast produced by Booksby, a software company building AI to help authors succeed. For a limited time, you can try Booksby Analytics for free. Save $139 and get the key marketing insights you need to reach your widest audience. To learn more and get started, visit Booksby.com. That's B-O-O-X-B-Y.com. And if you're a writer, remember, the world needs your stories. So keep writing and be well.